Flizzy and Jamaica. A chalice of love, a chalice of peace, a chalice of hope, our chalice lights our way. Thank you both very much. I'm going to hand over to Nancy. The children's talk this morning is The Shoemaker and the Elves, which I've retitled The Shoemaker and Her Partner and the Elves. <laughs> and I'm getting help from the children. So if the shoemaker and her partner could come stand next to me, we'll start there. The shoemaker is down in her luck. She has been working, but alas, her shoes are of poor quality and no one is buying them. And she's down to the last piece of leather, which she puts out wearily at night, and she and her partner go off to bed. Just walk one step. Okay. <laughs> During the night, naked elves... <laughs> Here, do you want to hear you go? <laughs> so keep yourselves covered. Okay. And then they run off. Run off. Okay. The shoemaker and her partner wake up the next morning and are amazed at the perfectly sewn masterpieces these shoes are. <laughs> shoemaker puts the shoes out in her storefront. A customer comes by and is so overawed by the beauty and the talent in these shoes that he buys them at a great price. More, in fact, than the shoemaker had been asking for. This allows her to buy more leather which she puts out weary, still she's very weary, puts out <laughs> enough leather for two uh, shoes and goes with her partner to bed. The naked elves return at midnight, always at midnight. See enough leather for two pairs of shoes. Somebody's going to have to donate their shoes. <laughs> so beautifully, beautifully, two, oh, wonderful, thank you very much. Two beautiful pairs of shoes, and they run off. You save those for The shoemaker and her partner uh, wake up and are amazed again at the talent behind these beautiful pairs of shoes, puts them out in the storefront, and again a customer comes by and pays more than asked for for these beautiful shoes. Goes, the shoemaker goes out, buys more leather for three pairs, still weary. She goes to bed, leaving the leather to work on the next morning. The naked elves come again. So three pairs of beautiful shoes now. <coughs> And uh, go go off. <laughs> and so on and so on and so on. Until many nights later, the shoe the shoemaker's partner says, "Let's find out how this is happening." Oh, says the shoemaker. <laughs> It really does work well. Uh, good idea. So that night they stayed up. They had coffee late. They stayed up and they hid behind the coat rack. <laughs> Along came the naked elves, sewed many, many more shoes for the next day, and ran off. <laughs> the shoemaker and her partner awake. And the shoemaker's partner says, Oh my goodness, those poor elves are naked. 
shoes, stockings and pants and shirts for them. And you make a fine pair of shoes, shoemaker, for the elves, because we must give them gifts back for all they have done for us. So they get busy, they work, 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 and they lay out very lovingly a whole sets of three sets of clothes and three beautiful pairs of shoes. The most beautiful pairs of shoes the shoemaker has ever made in her entire life. And then they hide behind the coat. The naked elves arrive again, right at midnight as usual. <gasps> to make the most beautiful shoes in her entire career and they live happily ever after. Thank you very, very much. And now, just to jumble up Mel entirely, I asked her if I could also lead the hymn, which is 185, but I think you'll know it without looking at the music, but for those of you who would like to look at the music and the children and they're going to take the towels with them when they go. This is a South African freedom song. You know it? Yes? No? Yes? No? Yes? Can we have a little light? do some more hard work but uh, as you go off and have your adventures we'll be thinking of you and 
hoping that you have as much adventure as we do. So shall we sing the children out again? again. In yesterday's conversations, a whole heap of themes came up again. But as with Wednesday, when the subject of as in Tuesday, rather, when the subject of evil came up, yesterday's conversations tended to focus on the experience and the reality of suffering, and how any of this makes sense in that context. The challenge of being in community and in dialogue. The privilege and the responsibility of being here now. The real challenge of what dialogue means when one is by choice or by otherwise or by circumstance. When one is by choice or by circumstance solitary. Some real wisdom in our conversations. And picking up on those themes and taking them in her own direction, I'm delighted this morning to introduce Nancy to give our fourth guest talk. Nancy's a much published and respected Unitarian writer and minister, and I'm sure many of you have got to know her through this, through this week. But Nancy's also been here many times before and was theme speaker for the week in 2002 and has led workshops in many of the intervening years. That possibly the preceding is. Certainly the intervening is. <laughs> so, Nancy, thank you very much. Thanks. Um, this. Good morning, good morning, good morning. This is my favourite audience. <laughs> what? You say the nicest thing. <laughs> Uh, yes. Thank you, Mel, for organizing all of this. This immense organizing and nurturing you've done to pull this off. Thank you, spirits. Simon, John, and Patricia are with us this morning. Um, I wasn't here last year, but I was here uh, the year before with both of them and had the privilege to do a theme talk back-to-back -back with Simon, John, and other wonderful colleagues. But uh, I've been singing Alleluia with Simon John since that wonderful talk he gave that week. And this uh, red scarf was given to me by Patricia. She had one one year, many years ago, and I admired it. And the next year, behold, she had gone to India or somewhere and bought me one exactly like the one I'd admired. And now it is my preaching, uh, lecturing. I always wear it everywhere I go. Thank you, colleagues, for this week, for saying so many things with which I agree. In fact, I have been startled all along how close we all are. I said in one of the talkbacks that Unitarians, I thought, shared experience. We have a great deal of, sh of overlap in experience, but where we differ is in the language we use to describe that, and that's a larger continuum. But this week, I, I think this week may be historic in the amount of agreement that, in fact, has happened. Um, David, thank you for myth, mysticism, mystery, all from the same root, meaning to close your eye, to close your mouth. So lovely. Where are you, David? Thank you for that. Yvonne, thank you for the line, we only drink with gratitude. Where are you? Thank you for that. And many, all, all this, just picked out one little thing. Michael, quote, a moment becalmed, floating, and free. And Maud, I dare not quote you because you only sent your <laughs> initial draft, but I, I loved what you sent. <laughs> I would kill you if you did that to me. So. <laughs> so I would like to say that I agree with almost all that has been said from this pulpit this week. A few preliminaries, and then we're going to get going here. The word God is a word. All words are metaphors. I need more light. That's what I'm having. Can, you, can somebody give me more light on this stream? Anna, thank you. All words are metaphors. That is, 
Everything means something else. This one. Perfect. Thanks. And you might as well leave them in the light as well, because my whole message is we just need to stand in the light. <laughs> there, I've said it. All right. All words are metaphor. That is to say, everything is something else. All metaphors carry us from one place to the other, if they're not a cliche, which is a dead metaphor. All metaphors carry us from one place to another. They don't point. Words don't point. Metaphors don't point. They carry. The question is, of course, is the word God dead? Is God dead? Is the metaphor God a dead word? In the preface of his great work, The Eclipse of God, Martin Buber looked up, uh, took up this question. Why keep such a blood-soaked word when so much evil has been done in its name? Why use a word when it continues to be so ridiculously and dangerously misused, drenched as it is in disrespect? Buber answers this by saying, precisely because of its history, we must continue to use it. Precisely because it is soaked in treachery and deceit, we must retain it. And I would add, Precisely because the fundamentalists, the reductionists, the fundamentalists, the reductionists have so defamed it, we must use it. We must hold on to what little tag of a tail we have hold of and hold on to it for dear life. Why, may I ask you, would we give the most dangerous people on this planet, those who would reduce life's complexity to dogma, money, and might, why would we give those people the most politically powerful word on the planet? And I would add, but this is another talk, but I still have to add it, why would we give them the most politically powerful book on this earth, namely the Bible? Not to mention all the poetry and art and brilliant things written about this word using this metaphor, God. Religion ignores the political to its peril. So this is an admonition that could only have been pronounced in the last 200 years in, this country, in these countries, yours and mine. These countries that pretend they have, that religion and politics have become separate. Which of course, at least in my country, they really have not. Many claim that both Gore and Kerry lost Bush because of a failure to use the word God to use it properly and often. So, God is a word. God is a politically charged word. Perhaps the most politically powerful word on the earth. And if, if uh, I don't know how Nazism, uh, the, 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 the World War II was taught here, but in our, when I learned it, although I was a terrible student, so I don't know if I misheard it, but anyway, somewhere I grew up thinking that it was secular. And, I, and if anyone was similarly taught, please read Susanna Heschel's book, Betrayal, about the, the uh, total and complete complicity of the churches throughout Germany. Um, and there's work on the complete complicity of the academy and professors signing oath. Stunning work on this. Uh, but as to the uh, theology, the, it couldn't have happened without churches and the word God waved in favor of that horror. As misused and misunderstood as this word is, we abandon the word God and we abandon the Bible at our peril and at the peril of the earth. Our children know this and face this problem every day, as Mal has mentioned, at school when their little holier-than-thou colleagues attack them. Our politicians know it. We who try to be above it, apart from it, removed from it, need to know it. And I recommend to you a book called God's Politics by Jim Wallace. It's about American politics, but it's universal. <clears throat> and it's basically a call to the religious left to get going, wake up and start talking out loud. I, have, I will have a bibliography and readings, by the way, that I, with permission from the powers that be, I will email to everyone. I was on my way to the Xerox machine when Jean said, don't waste that paper. <laughs> so, having declared all that 
I just declared, I am going to proceed now this morning to use the word God for the rest of my talk, trusting that as Unitarian, uh, Unitarians, you know it's asterisked, you know I mean it as a metaphor, you know I know that questions like, do you believe in God or does God exist, are meaningless questions, because unless we are willing to sit down with each other to unpack the metaphor, as we are doing this week, we have no idea what we're talking about. So, taking the word God to mean what David, Yvonne, and Michael have so beautifully given us, ignoring the subtle differences for now, what do I want to say about God this morning? What do I feel needs that has not yet been said or said loud enough? Um, and I'll start with a few quotes from Nietzsche. I would only believe in a God who could dance. Crumbine, I would only believe in a God who could laugh. And Hafiz... Every child has known God, not the God of names, not the God of don'ts, not the God who ever does anything weird, but the God who only knows four words and keeps repeating them, saying, come dance with me, come dance. But today I would like to focus on the grumpiness of God. <laughs> the challenges God throws at us and the need God has for us to wake up and take up the call. I draw, not directly, but indirectly from my reading at an early age of Abraham Heschel's book, God in Search of Man, in which he talks in the metaphor all, all the way through the book of God needing man. Emerson, of course, says nature needs our articulation in his essay, The Poet. Needs our articulation, our creative response to the creation in order to make it whole. And that's not just famous artists and poets, folks. That's all of us. Our creative response to the creation makes it whole. Meister Eckhart, the same. I'll talk about him a little later. <clears throat> um, I'm going to do a little aside, and because, it, uh, well, three things that have informed my religious upbringing, and I'm just going to give you in these three moments, my entire autobiography. When I was 10, my beloved dog died, an old mutt called Janny. And I was appalled. It was my first, exper first experience of death. I was appalled and grief-stricken, and I responded by concluding what any rational human being would conclude, which was, I am never going to love anything mortal again. I am only going to love what is immortal. And that was the beginning of my religious quest. Of course, hormones kicked in soon thereafter. <laughs> and my resolve fell apart. <laughs> um, in high school, I had a French teacher. I was flunking French. Um, but uh, this French teacher, I, I loved her because in the lab where I was supposed to be studying French, I was such a hopeless case that she was able to put a separate tape in for me of uh, theologians. So I was listening to theologians on the, uh, while everybody else was pronouncing their French. Um, anyway, I used to go after school every day, after school, and hang out in her classroom and talk about God, whether God existed or not, blah, blah, blah. And along the way, she gave me the book by one of your Anglicans, I believe, J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Small, a fabulous book. And that really uh, changed things a lot. Skipping a lot of things that happened, uh, as a grown-up, uh, I had a conversation with a woman I was very, very close to, practicing Catholic, devout believer. And we had many, many, many conversations. And finally, one day, in exasperation, I said, but this is ridiculous. Everything you're saying, you just, just made it all up. <laughs> It's all a pure figment of your imagination. And she said, so? <laughs> I really should sit down now. But it, it was as if, you know, I had been knocked over by a bolt of lightning with that one word. So? So, I like my God to have an edge. My experience of God is as the edge, on the edge, in the edge, in the hedge. <laughs> Wherever there is a hedge, 
God is. Sheila, God is in between the keys. Where are you? Wherever there is an edge, God is. Wherever there are two things, actions, events, beings, wherever two are gathered, God is there. The complexity and clashing paradoxes of the in-between. Gathered in strength, gathered in opposition, gathered in every which way. But, and here is where I hope I am taking our conversation the next step, where I hope to be controversial, shake things up a bit here. So far, we have been talking about the Sabbath. What about the other six days? Experiencing God is not always a sunny Saturday afternoon. So, here it is. It is never only pleasant if it is truly God. God, I am challenging us here, and I want every single one of you to be at the discussion at 445 in the Hibbert Room today. God is not just an ecstatic inhalation. And I don't mean to say that any of the speakers have said that. This isn't in opposition to the speakers. This is in addition. I hope you're hearing that. Sometimes the way I speak comes across... In our Unitarian tradition, we are called to understand and experience God through the Hebrew prophets, through the rabbi of Nazareth, through the call of nature from Mount Sinai, Mount Moriah, from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, from every hill and every molehill of Mississippi to the white peaks of Derbyshire to the little chapel across the road. We learn from the east, yes, and since the transcendentalists, we have become more and more enamored of the east, We pray and we meditate and we cry and we sing yes, yes in our communities in pairs of private conversations. Yes, yes in solitude. Yes, we pray and center ourselves and find peace and joy. Yes, yes. But for what? This is the Western religious question we cannot escape. We retreat to silence for what? This is the Unitarian question we need now this Thursday morning to take up. Emerson and Thoreau, for all their seclusion, for all their poetry, for all their love of Eastern thought, finally jumped full feet into the political fray of over slavery. The tranquility of Concord no longer existed in a vacuum that does, uh, no, no more existed in a vacuum than does our beloved Hucklow. Early in my religious history, I was required to memorize the 121st Psalm. I have been forever grateful for that, by the way. Memorizing is something we do not ask enough of our children. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul, the Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth, and even forevermore. But Nancy, for this Do you think God wants nothing from you? God preserves my soul for something. I am graced with love for something. When I truly feel that comfort, I hear a call as well. A call, the call of gratitude, of agape, agape, the spontaneous overflowing of unconditional love creates in us the same, the desire to give back. The painter moved by a field of lupin paints a picture, the poet a poem. Over the field fantastic, the lupin has returned. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear the music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? See? You 
couldn't help from singing. <laughs> Keep from singing. To feel that response, the response of that comfort, the call to go and do likewise. This is no easy feeling. Sometimes, of course, it is. Sometimes you just sing while you walk, and you have thanked God properly for all that you have received. But other times, it is stunning, fearful, awesome, horrible, horrible, a horrible thing to feel. Because sometimes, as I would, and I would argue that these are the biggest times, sometimes, the times when we are closest to God, these times, it is a call to do the impossible. An empowerment that says, oh God, maybe I could do some good in the world. Maybe I could do something to save my people. Dear sweet Jesus, maybe I could do something to save the earth. Oh, save me from these wild, impossible dreams. Damn, go away, dark thoughts that would call me to uproot myself, give up my morning coffee, and get to work. Save me these thoughts of being of use. When Moses turned to the burning bush, it was not a little patch of clover, just calmly cooing with gentle light, little airy flames. It was a gigantic gorse bush, burning wildly, and it spoke. Don't kid yourselves. And it told Moses the last thing in the world he wanted to hear. Go back to Egypt where the police have been ordered to shoot you on sight. And go tell Pharaoh, who ordered that you be killed on sight, to let your people go. Forty years of grief. Forty years Moses in grief, away from his people. And one day, his heart cracks open. And he turns, in the Hasidic understanding of turning, and he turns, and he listens, and he hears the call to save his people. Grief cracks open the heart for work. I'm thinking of Margaret's dear friend, Meg, who has written this marvelous book, a page a day for a year after her daughter's death. She wrote it, as Nietzsche would say, first for herself, but for all of us. God, my dear fellow Unitarians, I declare to you this morning, our fourth morning together in this tranquil, sacred place, is all that we have said so far, and God is a bat out of hell. We meditate, we walk over the hills to be with God, but don't let us walk too far. Don't let me, please God, run into one of those bushes of yours. Those I know you have placed all around me. So close I could trip over them every walk I take. Please, God, please don't let me see you that closely. I once showed a movie to a class I was teaching on religion. This is the same class, by the way, that one day I said to them, I just wish God would come tell me what to do. And this was a teaching moment for me, too. They said, Are you crazy? <laughs> We were reading The Sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac at the time. <laughs> Which I, I had momentarily forgotten. <laughs> Once I showed a movie to this class I was teaching on religion, a movie about the religious right-wing predators in Honduras. And it, it was a Bill Moyers show. It contrasted the liberation theology movement in Nicaragua. A student was so moved by this movie, and the wonderful things going on with the left-wing ministers, waving the Bible in one hand and Marx in the other hand, that she came to me a week later to say that she was dropping out of the university and going to Nicaragua. Oh, I said, I didn't mean for you to take the movie that seriously. <laughs> God calls. 
Hello? I need help. Who the hell am I going to send? Is anyone awake out there? Rumi and Kabir, wake up. Do something. Nietzsche, let the young soul ask herself, himself, what do I love? Where is my passion? Everything you are now is not you. God calls to Isaiah. And if you haven't read it recently, let me read it to you. I saw the God sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I want to talk about that this afternoon. What does unclean lips mean? Unclean lips. I've spoken lies. I don't know what it means. And I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then... One of the seraphs flew to me. This is in Isaiah's voice. One of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it, burned my lips, and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Don't ever tell me that forgiveness begins in the New Testament. It does not. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, and the importance of forgiveness, the importance of getting rid of guilt before you can do anything. You get it? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Or we have Jacob wrestling with the angel. You remember that. A man, an angel, comes and, they, and he wrestles and he pulls his hip socket out. If you've ever had a dislocated joint, you know how painful that is. And he limps thereafter. Jacob limps thereafter. One has to be damaged in order to be blessed. One has to be wounded to open up. I could read many, many poets about this, about the stranger, about the stranger welcoming the stranger. You all know this. And you all know the story of Le Chambon, 4,000 Jews saved because they understood the importance of welcoming the stranger. Because the stranger may be, well, may well be the angel that wrestled with Jacob. But let us take a slightly less terrifying story To pursue this a little bit further, let us take the shoemaker and the elves. This is a parable, and I'm I'm drawing a lot of this from this wonderful book I just discovered called The Gift by Lewis Hyde, and I've left it over there for you to look at. It's fabulous, and I'll bring it this afternoon. This is a story, my friends, that holds within it the theological answer to all our troubles. It is a parable of a gifted person, and that's all of us, right? We all have a gift. We all are ourselves. The initial stirrings of a gift, the elves represent this initial stirring of the gift, right? It's, it's the divine coming with our gift. But the shoemaker can't receive the gift right away, right? She doesn't have the self-esteem. She hasn't let go of her guilt. We could go on, lots of possibilities here. The initial stirrings of the gift when it is potentially ours, when the elves make the shoes for her, and then the releasing of the gift when it actually is ours, when does that gift of good, of quality shoemaking become hers? When she gives the gift back. When she she receives gratefully, gratefully, and then gives the gift back. The gift is the shoemaker's talent carried by the elves, her own worth is not available to her at the beginning of the story, but mysteriously, while asleep, it begins to come. The elves, the mystery, 
gives her talent. The elves have need, however, of the shoemaker. The elves' freedom depend on the shoemaker's recognition and gratitude. The transformative gift cannot be received because the person does not have the power to receive the gift initially. She feels its potential. She feels something aroused in her, but she needs to get to work. We need to get to work. Only when we are creating do we know creation. Only when we ourselves, we are ourselves do we know ourselves. Only when we become God do we know God. We live God. We do not think God. We are the people we have been waiting for. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous knows this very well. The 12th step is giving back. National Alliance for Mental Illness, of which I have been, have been going to meetings. The last step is to become an advocate. Once you have worked through your own grief of your beloved, uh, uh, the the person in your family who has suffered with mental illness, you go on then to help others. The abiding sense of gratitude moves a person to labor in the service of his daemon. Meister Eckhart, 14th century mystic, same exchange as a shoemaker, all things Oh, our being to God, those who feel gratitude for the gift of life, reciprocate by abandoning attachment to worldly things. God finds, once God finds a soul detached from the worldly things, he enters in. She enters in. He, in Eckhart's words. <clears throat> I want to say a word. No, before I do, let me read a Rumi poem, The Net of Gratitude. Giving thanks for abundance is sweeter than the abundance itself. I'm going to read this twice. Giving thanks for abundance is sweeter than the abundance itself. Should one who is absorbed with the generous one be distracted by the gift Thankfulness is the soul of beneficence. Abundance is but the task. Sorry, is but the husk. Thankfulness is the soul of beneficence. Abundance is but the husk. For thankfulness brings you to the place where the beloved lives. Abundance yields heedlessness. Thankfulness brings alertness. Hunt for bounty with the net of gratitude. So, I'd like to conclude. How much more time do I have? Five, five minutes? Oh, ten. <laughs> Bring out my other paper. <laughs> I do want you to have time to talk. Okay, good. I will read before I read myself. In conclusion, I want to read a quote from Emerson's journal. Everything a man knows and does enters into and modifies his expression of himself. And he quotes Goethe, what is genius but the faculty of seizing, and we're all geniuses, right? What is our daemon? We each have a daemon. We each have a genius. What is genius but the faculty of seizing and turning, turning to account everything that strikes us? Okay, I'd like to conclude this morning by reading from the journal I kept this summer. My parents' legacy to me was the love of words 
and this small cabin in northern Canada, which they designed and built themselves. I wrote this on the screen porch, looking out through hemlocks and twisted cedars to the water below. The sound of loons and a million birds are in the background. Willa Cather, my life began for me when I ceased to admire and began to remember. My life began for me when I ceased to admire and began to remember. That's a quote I read many, many years ago, and I, have still, I still struggle daily to live by that wisdom. So I write in the journal after I've written that quote down for the hundred thousandth time. God is in the energy that wants us to blossom into who we are. To be the particular flower we were set on earth to be. Not an ugly duckling, but a swan. Not an ugly swan, but a duckling. Remembering no flower is perfect. No roots grow without having to wind themselves around pesty rocks. The cedars here are twisted and leaning all toward what sun they can find. How can I say this freshly? It takes such concentration. God is an energy, a light, a breath, a wind, a force that speaks and it says, be meaningful. Bloom yourself where you are planted. Whoever you are that is the part, whoever you are, that is the part you play. Whatever you, whatever your past, that is your past. And beauty lies within it. All you need to do is pay attention. All you need to do is love yourself just the way you are. I'm actually writing to myself. I never use the you and when I speak. I try not to, but... Um, Maybe I have all morning, who knows. But uh, this is a meditation to myself at this point. With every imperfection or disease or flaw, wake up every morning and pray to God, gratitude, you were not born a woman, as the Orthodox Jews pray. I, always, I never understood that. I was always horrified. They wake up every morning and say, thank God I'm not a woman. But of course, they're men. What a wonderful thing to say. Thank God I'm not a woman, I'm a man. Or a man. Wake up every morning and pray to God that you're not a man. So I started to do that after I wrote this. <laughs> Dear God, thank you I'm not a man. Thank you I'm not a brilliant physicist. Or whatever it is you thought you did want to be. Whoever it is that you have admired all these years. Thank God you are not any of those people. This is when I know God. When I know I am meant to be me. Meant to have taken this journey just the way I have taken it. Including the terrible mistakes I made as a mother. My most dreaded regrets. Including those. Including the time so wasted on being numb or dull or asleep to the mystery and beauty of this blessed earth. Not meant as in there is some plan I'm living out, but meant as in there is no other choice. I cannot be anyone but what I am, having taken the paths I have taken, having made the mistakes that I have made. What I get to choose is in the present how I look at it all, how in the present I incorporate all this experience, whether I welcome it as a guest every day. whether I welcome it as a guest every day. This is what I want to say to them, my beloved friends at summer school. Love yourself, and you will do justice, and you will love kindness, and you will walk humbly with your We are singing in the light of God. We are singing in the light of God. We are singing in the light of God.
of God. We are singing in the light of God. We are singing, we are singing, we are singing in the light of God. We are singing, we are singing, we are singing in the light come to an end. Consider them conversations you're saving to finish till later. Yeah? <laughs> being with God, being of God, is hard work. Nancy's drawn out for us the way God must challenge us, must leave us troubled, must draw us deeper. Responding to Nancy's plans for her theme talk brought back to me another theme which has occupied me much of late, and that's hope. And the words of the great Langston Hughes come to me often when times are hard, when God seems a long way beyond experience. His words, hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field, frozen with snow. It is a part of the human condition to hope. In the face of sorrow, pain and fear, we hope. When we are challenged by all that life can throw at us, when we are being bashed about by the whirlpools, we can feel we're going around and around and around. In Hope is what sustains us. And hope is, of course, intimately tied up with faith or otherwise in God. In 1 Corinthians 13, we hear about the virtues of faith, hope and charity or love talked a lot about faith and what God means and therefore what it might mean to have faith in such a God. And love has imbued the whole of summer school and Nancy's talk this morning. And hope is there too. The greatest, of course, of those is charity or love, as it's more often translated now. But hope is right in there on a par with faith. Hope is not peripheral. Hope is central to that religious message. And I wonder if it is the virtue we have most readily jettisoned because of its otherworldly connotations. Our hope does not have to be otherworldly, as Nancy has so well discussed this morning. It does not have to be a dreamed-of perfection in a distant heaven. And I love the concept of the new Jerusalem in the Christian tradition. Of course, I do miss out a few parts of it. But <laughs> the new Jerusalem can be constructed as a this-worldly hope, a desire for a nation of God on earth. And this is a very real and noble hope we could all share in. To serve God is to seek to bring about God's nation. A perfected human community of equality, justice, peace and prosperity. 
does that perfected nation seem as improbable and implausible as a distant kingdom of heaven? A perfected human community of equality, justice, peace and prosperity. Does that seem as improbable and implausible as a distant kingdom of heaven? What does that tell us about humanity? Is it not, perhaps, more appropriate to ask, can we have hope in humanity rather than can we have hope in God? The Unitarian A. Powell Davis, and this is quite a long quote, for which I apologise, but I really love it, so I'm going to give it you anyway. <laughs> a. Powell Davis wrote, There are times when I stand aside and I wonder at the strangeness of this world of ours. The years of all of us are short, our lives precarious, our days and nights go hurrying on, and there is scarcely time to do the little that we might. Yet we find time for bitterness, for petty treason, for evasion. What can we do to stretch our hearts enough to lose their littleness? Here we are, all of us, all of us upon this planet, bound together in a common destiny, living our lives between the briefness of the daylight and the dark. Kindred in this, each lighted by the same precarious, flickering flame of life, how does it happen that we are not kindred in all things else? How strange and foolish are these walls of separation, I don't know where my voice went there, separation that divide us. When I think of these things, I wonder. I wonder at the patience of God. While the dream still lives in our hearts, God waits. While the vision shines in our eyes, God hopes. How long shall we keep God waiting? I wonder at the patience of God. While the dream still lives in our hearts, God waits. While the vision shines in our eyes, God hopes. How long shall we keep God waiting? Maybe, maybe, God has hope in us hopes for us. Maybe this is how we as human beings are constructed in God's image. We are what God has hope in. God, as Nancy has said, requires something of us. Frank Shulman said, of course, that every picture of God is a self-portrait. We've already heard the joke that God created man in his own image and man has been repaying the favour ever since. But this joke points to a greater truth. We construct, recognise and hear our God through the greatest that humanity and human beings can be. Around the aspirations we have for ourselves and our communities. It is not wrong to construct God in our own image if that image is us at our best. Us as human beings living our lives in the hope of perfect fulfilment. A perfected human community. What a wondrous aspiration. So let us again end with a few moments of stillness. Some time to let our thoughts settle. So many words, so many ideas, so many images. What is it that floats to the surface for us?
let the river run, let all the dreamers wake the nation, come the new Jerusalem.